You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. This is Greg. I'm here with Rob. Hey, Rob, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Um, just for everyone listening, though, um, our producer talked us into doing video. And so we're looking at ourselves on video and it's totally messing us up. So I just wanted to put that out there. If it's, we seem it's, it's, it feels very awkward. You know, we, we uh, I, I for those of you that have ever audited with me, you know that when I'm working from home, I work out of the basement, it's an unfinished basement. It's got like Bruce Wayne, Batman cave vibes. And, uh, you know, Aiden said, no, that's not going to work for this video. So you've got to find a better background. And so I'm sitting in my eight-year-old daughter's uh, bedroom. She's got uh, Fancy Nancy and artwork stuff here. That's a nice so, flamingo. Um, yeah, yeah. So, again, see, see how this uh, works out. We may, may not stick with the video. Rob and I, it really throws us off, but uh, we'll give it a shot here. Yeah, like, for instance, I didn't know I was this bald. Like, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> very bald uh, if you guys if for those that don't my, know my, yeah. my my beard looks much grayer outside of the basement <laughs> than it does downstairs so <laughs> this is a great episode uh really interesting discussion we've got uh a guest that we're going to bring on in a little bit here um Bashiri keys uh director of policy and regulatory affairs from NAC. um really excited to to have her i i think Every once in a while, I get a little frustrated with the content that is out on LinkedIn, but that was the um, platform for us to get connected with the Sharia. So, you know, it's just something when I get connected to somebody that's kind of in the space I'd never met before that I probably never would meet because we're in different geographic locations. It just reminds me, you know, it's important to, to be positive and be active on uh, at least on your, your social media networks in business. All right, Rob? Absolutely. I mean, you know, Vashari reached out and we had a great conversation with her um, and then she um, and we were just really talking to her about, you know, NAC and pharma. And she we asked her if she wanted to be on the podcast. She said yes. And I thought it was a great episode. You know, I do think, you know, because of the things that went on and what we've heard, especially in social media, it felt like Nat got a pretty bad rap over this. And we un understandably. Right. Especially if you're on the hospital side. But sure, very pleasant, very well spoken. Um, it really helped us understand better where NAC's coming from. So. Agreed. I think it was a great interview. I think for those out there, we just recommend, you know, we just like to remind everybody, you know, we are neutral, right? We, we, because we do have, not neutral, I guess we care about all covered entities is, is what I want to say, because we have lots of hospitals that we support and we care what happens to them and how they can take care of their patients. But at the same time, we have a lot of community health centers, Ryan White's grantees also being significantly harmed with a lot of the recent things going on with the 340B program. And uh, it was great to see your perspective and great to just kind of answer, ask her some questions. Greg, you asked her some pretty pointed questions about hospitals feeling left out in here. And, um, you know, and she yeah. had some responses for that. So and and what I want to say is not everyone's going to agree with everything that Vasheri says or, you know, if you're a grantee or community health center, not everything that, you know, we say or other people we might have in future podcasts. Will you agree from the hospital side? But um, but I do think we as a covered entity community still need to find a way to work together. And, you know, I guess the way I look at it is I'd love to see if we can't repair some of that gap that's now been created between the hospitals and the community health centers, because I think we do need to function as one big safety net for patient care. And I think that's super critical. And if we can play any part of that, I think then we've done our job. Yeah. You know, and we, we kind of, you know, not just 
had conversation with her about the ASAP 340B principles, which, you know, we've talked about here and have generated a lot of chatter in the 340B space. But just, you know, Michelle's got, she's, you know, lawyer by background. She's got kind of perspective and opinion on where things are going in the future in terms of legal proceedings with contract pharmacy restrictions and patient definition. And, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine that we're going to see relief from future court rulings, at least on the manufacturer restrictions in the contract pharmacy space. So, so really, you know, a more likely path to resolution is through some type of change legislatively. And that can only happen when you have open dialogue about meaningful, uh, you know, evolution of the program. And that's yeah. what we're trying to do by bringing her on here. Yeah, you had some great questions for her, especially around um, some of the law cases. I'll just say Genesis law case that the with uh, with HHS uh, with HRSA uh, around their audit, and that that's supposed to be coming in August. So she had some good um, kind of good take on that as well. So hopefully, once we get to that uh, part later in this episode, um, you you appreciate some of her responses and and her and really uh, Nat's perspective on things. I think I think it'd be very helpful just to understand kind of why they did what they did and and where they're at today. All right, yeah. So stick around for that. Um, couple of news, uh, news or noteworthy items. Maybe maybe some follow ups too. When we last talked, or maybe it was two episodes ago, I can't remember now, the recap of Coalition and during um, uh, Director Egwam's uh, discussion of kind of current state of uh, OPA and 340B, there was some differing interpretations around what he said as far as the outlook for HRSA audits in 2023. Rob, recap what, what we heard or what some of our team members heard. Yeah, and, and it was in our post um, 340B Coalition kind of episode, and, and we had a recorded episode where I recorded, I had my mic for those that were at the coalition, I had this little mic, so I'm sure people ran away when they saw me with the mic, but um, recorded two of our staff that had just came out of that session with Command, Lieutenant Commander Egwim, where he had said, in 2022, we did completed 200 annual independent audits of 340B covered entities, and we're looking to do an additional 200 in 2023. So the question was, wait, what does additional mean? Does that just mean we're just going to do 200 in 2023 or are we going to do 400 in 2023? So I, I reached out to Apexis and they said, you know, it'd be best to clarify with HRSA. So I got it straight from HRSA's mouth. Um, that's just my plan words. Hopefully you guys got that. Um, and so for sure, we're doing 400 audits in 2023. Um, no, I'm just kidding. So I just wanted to, I just, that's a bad dad joke. <laughs> they are only doing 200 audits in 2023. Um, HRSA did confirm that for us. Um, Aiden, just for the record, do not clip that first part because it'll be out of context and it'll scare the crap out of people. So so it's just <laughs> oh, 200 audits total in 2023. Got that confirmation. We had mentioned we'd get that clarification and do that. So there it is. So hopefully um, everyone gets that. And maybe we need to strike that because I don't want that to be just the only thing that people hear. So I just, I just had a dad joke moment, so I apologize for that. You know, what? one other, you know, I think thing that we'll want to pay attention to or see develop this year is, you know, in March, OPA sent out those letters. So they were essentially voluntary surveys to covered entities um, that had been audited in the past, so 60 letters, roughly 60. We heard up to 100. I don't know if we got a full number yet. I think the most commonly referenced number is around 60. Uh, we had about a half a dozen or so clients that we worked with to put responses to those letters. You know, the, what, what I'm not certain of is whether that is kind of like a one and done uh, effort by HRSA to just to gather some benchmark statistics around what's going on in uh, a sector of the 340B program, or if that's a ongoing part of their program integrity process is kind of surveying previously audited clients or audited uh, covered entities. 
Yeah, when I had um, Hersa's uh, ear, I should ask that question too, but also hyper-focused on the 200 or 400 question. I just want to get that answered. Uh, one of our clients of those half dozen um, did reach out and say, hey, have you heard from anybody? Have they responded? Because those letters have now been turned in or the responses have been turned in. And uh, as far as I know, none of our clients have told us that Hersa's responded to them submitting it. So no follow-up questions so far. Um, if you happen to be listening and you are one of those covered entities that receive one of those letters and you have sent it in and maybe you got a response, we'd love to hear about it. Love to update the, the podcast community on what's occurring there. But as far as we know, we haven't heard of anybody um, receiving a response on that yet. Good. All right. Another OPA related item to discuss today. I think we talked about this in the last episode. Um, starting in April, we saw changes on the OPA database. So um, government officials no longer a required field uh, for registering and recertifying hospitals. Ryan White's don't need to put the NOFO number in any longer because that's part of the, the HRSA grantee um, process already. And they added change request option for uh, hospital covered entities in the qualification info tab. So the place on OPACE where you uh, provide details regarding your Medicare cost report. So the filing date, the disproportionate share percentage, cost reporting period, your hospital classification type. Historically, that was uneditable. So you would key that in when you registered or when you recertified and you couldn't go back and correct it if you made an error. You couldn't update that until the following uh, recertification period. So HRSA has now introduced the change request feature, which can be submitted at any point in time throughout the year to edit the information that's on your qualification info tab. The question that we have, we reached out to OPA and got confirmation. The expectation moving forward is now that hospital covered entities will use the change request function to update their Medicare cost report information upon the cost report being filed. Historically, you would just wait and do that once a year during recertification. Even if your cost report was maybe filed in February, you would sit on that. And then during recertification, you'd go in and you'd key in the new cost reporting information. The expectation now moving forward, as far as we understand from communication from OPA, is that once the cost report is filed, covered entities should be going in, updating the Medicare cost report information on OPACE in real time. A little bit of a change from, from how we've managed it in the past. Yeah, and I think that'll be good because that's always been kind of an issue, um, right? We've seen some findings around that because people haven't been able to update it or yeah. the the authorizing official is a little um, quick on the trigger and does the recertification before the 340B team or the primary contact can remind them, hey, we've got to update that cost report info and it's stuck for a whole year and then they happen to get a HRSA audit. So you get this technical finding violation. So then you have to do a corrective action plan around it. So, you know, no financial impact, but it's, I, I guess, more um, just frustrating than anything else that that you can't fix it even after you identify it or if we identify it on our annual audits hey this is not aligned and it should have been updated then so glad that's they're also glad that we don't have to keep updating that government official i think that's a big big update um that one's been causing problems because the government official in many cases are elected people and then they they come out of office and people just forget because it's not very visible right it's sitting on that qualification tab that only the aonpc can see and so unless they're looking and they're clicking on that tab they forget oh we've got to change that government official so Getting rid of the government official, what I think was another positive step, um, you know, if because they have a government contract, I don't know why we have to always update the government official. And it seems like HRSA kind of felt the same way and got rid of that piece. Yeah, re- really, pro, you know, pragmatic, uh, I think, changes. Nice, nice to see new administrative tasks now, you know, or a different time of the year when you have to complete that that administrative task of updating the MCR. Um, and, you know, the, our understanding is that OPA is going to communicate that a little more broadly leading up to recertification. So covered entities are aware of that expectation 
Um, but uh, nonetheless, uh, I think a, a positive change. Yeah, I, I do like to say NOFO, though, so I'm kind of sad I won't be able to say that as often. <laughs> I'll leave that alone for why, but if you know, you know. All right, let's talk about legislative updates. Uh, some uh, draft legislation introduced in the House. So protect 340B Act, right? So one thing that we're always paying attention to, and again, I like to thank our our um, 340B um, kind of uh, partners. I'm not sure what the best thing to call all of them are, but 340B Health and 340B Report always lean on them to come up with real-time update information for us, and then that allows us to research and actually go read things. Um, and we're really trying to pay attention to what type of legislation comes out, especially right now with NAC and Pharma, you know, potentially working with legislators to come up with some uh, some draft legislation that would be related to the recommendations they had. Um, but during during that whole process of waiting for that, we found that the Protect 340B Act was introduced in the House um, by Representatives Abigail uh, Spanberger. And I apologize if I don't get the name right. That could be Spanberger, Spanberger. Greg, help me out. I think it's Spanberger. Spanberger, thank you. Um, but I've, I've been known to mispronounce, mispronounce other people's names <laughs> on the podcast. And, and people will commonly tell me about that, so... She, she's a Democrat out of Virginia. Uh, and then Dusty Johnson, I'm pretty sure I got that one right, um, uh, Republican out of uh, South Dakota. So so they both, so bipartisan coming out of the House, Protect 340B Act, two major components. Um, and I'll be honest, I, I think they're, um, uh, one is definitely positive. The other one, I'm not sure where it'll go. So, so quick, let's have a quick discussion on that. The first one that's positive is, you know, we've had over half the states now have passed state based legislation prohibiting prohibiting PBMs from discriminating against 340B covered entities or contract pharmacies um, on the basis of 340B drugs. And so this is the first time we've seen at a federal level that we actually now have a bill that's aimed to just do what every half the states have done independently to do it across the country. So I think that's very positive because we still see some of that. And I'm always asking, was it one of the states that have legislation? Is it not? California is really close to passing one right now. Um, around PBM discrimination. So I think that's the big positive one. Excited to see that. Um, I think that's that's a long time coming, right? PBMs and, and payers really shouldn't be harvesting 340B savings to decrease their costs. That's the hospitals and covered entities and, and um, community health center savings so that they can do what there. it was intended to, to expand patient care, provide discounts for or patients who need it and so forth. So I think long time coming. So that that's positive. The second piece, which I didn't know was in there until I started reading through it, is there is this um, component that directs HRSA to contract with an independent body to retrospectively review duplicate discounts. And, and you know, in some of the commentary I've read um, in, in some of the outlets that have, have published some information on this, it, it, this, this may be related to the ESP program. And are we trying to say, no, it really should be an independent body, not an organization paid for by Pharma or somebody else like the Calderos, but really an independent body that's going to review it for duplicate discounts. Now, one catch with this, this does not include uh, Medicare currently, or it wouldn't include commercial. So ESP kind of goes more broad than that. Um, but this is really just a focus on duplicate discounts and having it in retrospective review. So I don't know if that's positive or negative. I'm just going to leave that one out there. In fact, Greg, look, I don't know if you have thoughts around if that's a good, is that a bad, or it's neutral until we learn more. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I can see, like, coming from the operational side, it's really, if you're a covered entity that carves in multiple states, it's really challenging to manage different state-specific billing requirements, UD modifiers, U8 modifiers, you know, acquisition costs versus 340B ceiling price. So so if, it, if there's a, a measure or a, a methodology out there to standardize how covered entities are supposed to, you know, identify and, and code their, their 340B claims, I, I got to imagine that 
covered entities would, would embrace that. But I guess, I don't know, you know, is, are we talking maybe a clearinghouse here for Medicaid 340B claims? Could be. And, you know, I think about this, I, I say Medicare, not yet, but we know Medicare because of the Inflation Reduction Act is going to need something similar. So I wonder that, if this yeah. would parlay into both. It does leave commercial out, which is what something that pharma or the pharmaceutical manufacturers would like to see because they've got their own contractual issues they've got to deal with and not paying rebates on commercial contracts. But as far as Medicare and or CMS entirely, Medicare and Medicaid, I do th I, I could see a clearinghouse for both, which would solve a problem of not having to do claim 20 modifiers or N1 modifiers for retail and contract pharmacy for Medicare. So I, I can see the yeah. value in that again, but I think the devil will be in the details or the proofs in the pudding and how that rolls out. What's the burden of effort that the covered entities are going to have to take on in order to provide data to whomever this independent body is? Is it going to, and what's the, you know, what, what's the cadence of that? I mean, we, we know just from covered entities that are trying to um, get 340B pricing reinstated in their contract pharmacies, it is a huge lift to get data into 340B ESP. You know, some of the chatter that I've seen on uh, different email uh, servers is that, I mean, that, that process is really fraught with error. You know, if you introduce another process where covered entity is going to have to retrospectively, you know, pony up data, um, you know, some covered entities just don't have the bandwidth to take on that that uh, that work right now. Yeah. And um, and so I agree. I, so I think we probably need to learn a little bit more. And here's the one thing I should share. This is the bill that the, you know, these two representatives in the House presented. They do have bipartisan support. They have much more support within the House um, and some of the Energy and Commerce Committee um, and, and the actual Health Subcommittee. But there isn't a Senate companion bill yet. So a lot of times when you see these bills be more successful, they do have a Senate companion bill that's very similar. They're operating kind of in unison. And as they get modified, they kind of modify together or as, as it goes across the aisle um, or it goes across to the other um, House or Senate, then, then those things kind of gel. So some of these could get removed. We could see things being added. We probably need to wait and see if a Senate companion bill is created and what it looks like um, at that point. So a little early, but I did want to share that this is in progress. And also because if you're doing, you know, in the past couple of episodes, we've talked about the need for every covered entity to, to be doing their part legislatively working with, you know, any of the, the staff that you have on your team or even independently, you just have to do it, is contacting your senators and your representatives and sharing the importance of 340B. This might be one you would want to support and throw, throw your name and weight behind potentially with a caveat on this uh, independent retrospective duplicate discount review thing, you know, uh, maybe weigh in on that as well. But definitely the PBM thing, I think, is a positive thing. And, and we're really 340. I think that one everyone probably agrees on, except PBMs. Um, that needs yeah. to occur. Yeah, the, the, the pickpocket protections are, are a slam dunk, I think, if you're in the 340B community. You know, the, the retrospective review for duplicate discount, you know, we just looked at HRSA audit statistics from 2022. So they, you know, they just up, they refreshed the program integrity page at the end of March. I think 183 audits put out, um, for 2022. 25% of covered entities that had a finding had a duplicate discount finding. 33, I think 32% of findings were related to Medicaid exclusion file issues. So compliance is a challenge for duplicate discount prevention and the use of the Medicaid exclusion file. So maybe there's a more optimal approach or uh, opportunity for covered entities to prevent duplicate discount with whatever's going to be proposed here. Yeah, I mean, having you said that, I wonder if we just need to focus. We have so much information from our audits around duplicate discount, out-of-state Medicaid, Medicaid being secondary, Medicaid primary, fee-for-service, managed care, modifiers, out-of-state modifiers. Um, AEC, right? There's all these things. Maybe, maybe we need to yeah. add that, throw that in for future podcasts. Maybe. It's a complex, complex issue. It's 
very challenging. If you sit on the border of a tri-state area, it's probably one of your biggest headaches. So, you know, I'm sure a lot of people will be interested in uh, hearing about all of, all of that. And I'm hoping there are folks out there that maybe have ideas what, you know, uh, you know, a retrospective duplicate discount prevention process might look like. What are some ideas that we might want to throw back to our advocacy groups as an actionable suggestion for, for how to manage Medicaid stuff a little bit better? Absolutely. Absolutely. Love it. I think we covered everything we've, uh, any recent updates now. I think it's just excited. We get to kind of let everyone hear the the, the uh, excellent um, episode or uh, interview we have with Vashari Keys. Yeah, great. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll talk to Vashari on the other side. Uh, just stick around. We'll be right back with you. Thanks. The 340B Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by Spendmen Pharmacy. As a pharmacy industry professional, you know 340B program participation includes complex regulatory and audit requirements that must be managed carefully and accurately. If HRSA identifies non-compliance issues, costly and corrective actions are often required, and 340B programming eligibility may be at risk. Visit spendmen.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how Spendman Pharmacy can help you ensure 340B compliance while driving significant savings. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. We've got our guest today, Vasharia Keys. She's the Director of Policy and Regulatory Affairs at National Association of Community Health Centers, or what we affectionately call NAC. Vasharia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Really excited to have you talk about 340B, talk about what's going on in the grantee world. Rob, we've been looking forward to this one, huh? Absolutely. So excited to have Vasharia on. Um, had, you know, we, we were able to talk to her a little bit before and just kind of catch up and, and, and really, you know, community health centers and, and NAC specifically as well, supporting them. So important to the 340B covered entity landscape. You know, there's been lots of discussions around NAC lately. And so excited to dive in and, and really, to be honest, just get uh, Vasharia's perspective and get NAC's perspective on things um, in 340B and and just like to point out for everyone listening that, you know, at Spemman, we, we support both community center, community health centers, other grantee types like Ryan White's, STDs, uh, hemophilia clinics, um, Indian Health Service, as well as all of our hospital covered entity types. And, and we want to make sure that we're providing a voice and a platform for everybody and all the covered entities come and talk, um, talk 340B and, and what's on their minds and, and what's what's going on in, in their their world. So excited for this discussion today. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I know I told you all this before, but went down a rabbit hole one day about y'all's audits and learning a lot. So I'm very excited to be here um, and actually be on the podcast because I listen usually all the new episodes. It's it's still hard for me to believe that people actually want to listen to a podcast about 340B stuff, but <laughs> so so proud to hear that. So. <laughs> Thank you. So let, let's start with introductions. Vishari, you know, our, the folks that are listening um, that are in the grantee space, I'm sure know who you are, but maybe for some of the other folks out there, uh, clients that we work with and other folks from maybe a hospital background may not be familiar with you and your role in the 340B space. Tell us a little bit about what you do at NAC. Yeah, um, so I've been at NAC for about two and a half years, getting close to three. Um, I'm an attorney by trade. I've been in kind of the health policy space for the last uh, five or six years, but really um, was exposed to 340B as I joined NAC in the pandemic. So I started working at NAC September 2020 in the thick of it all and been here um, as things have grown 
um, exponentially worse. And so I think, you know, my exposure to 340B um, has been very different in the 340B climate, but I've learned a lot and I know how um, impactful the 340B program is to our health centers. And, you know, NAC is a member of the 340B coalition. So we have worked closely with other covered entities uh, on the national association level. Um, and I think my my um, experience as an attorney and all the 340B litigation that we have been tracking has also been super valuable. So I really, um, 340B is actually like 10% of my job. Uh, I oversee federal policy, state policy, as well as regulatory affairs at NAC. But 340B is such a huge component for Health Center. It definitely um, is what takes up most of my time and energy as we've been really fighting for a solution, which is what led us to create ASAP 340B. Great. Yeah, we're going to get into the ASAP 340B policy reform principles in a little bit. And also, I think we're going to try to leverage your legal expertise and, and get your opinion on some of those more notable 340B developments in the contract pharmacy space and maybe around patient definition. But, but first, let's kind of jump into the grantee experience in the very choppy waters of 340B over the last couple of years. Can you share any insight around how uh, grantee covered entities um, have been impacted by all of the recent developments in the 340B space, whether it's the contract pharmacy restrictions or maybe residual impact from COVID-19? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's, you know, I wouldn't say perfect storm in a positive light, but the um, timing of manufacturers deciding to restrict access to drugs at contract pharmacies in the thick of a COVID-19 pandemic definitely has taken some devastating tolls. And, you know, thankfully, Congress um, and the Trump administration, as well as the Biden administration, you know, saw health centers as a resource and we were able to get additional funding for the work that health centers were doing on the front lines to respond to the pandemic. But as we, you know, are now coming out of COVID-19 pandemic and that funding, you know, is starting to be used um, or needs to be used, it really is shining a light on the 340B impact. And so, um, you know, when you look at most contract pharmacy restrictions impact health centers the most in the grantee space, uh, right after us is definitely Brian White Clinics, but majority of uh, grantees don't really rely on the contract pharmacy model as much as health centers and I would say Brian White Clinics are HIV STD providers. And so looking at that, right, the contract pharmacy fight is not everyone's and, you know, health centers um, use contract pharmacy most more than some hospitals. I think we use it the most out of all covered entities, which really shows our urgency. Um, and, you know, NAC at the start of this in September 2020, uh, we were the only covered entity that sued HHS to get the alternative dispute resolution process stood up because legally um, a covered entity cannot sue a manufacturer under the 340B statute. That needs to happen through the alternative dispute resolution process or ADR process. So NAC filed a lawsuit fall of 2020 to get HHS to issue that rule. The Trump administration then issued a final rule. And then at the top of 2021, uh, NAC was one of the first organizations uh, behind the Ryan White Co uh, Coalition that also filed an ADR petition. Um, and then, you know, trying to work within the bounds of what the law allows us to do. Um, you know, we submitted amicus briefs in 2021 in the pending litigation between HHS and manufacturers. Um, and then our ADR process took a while to get off the ground because, um, you know, 
unfortunately, or not fortunately, but there was a, we had to work with the pandemic, we had to work with an administration change. And so end of 2021 was when we first saw this ADR process. And I think out of all the grantees, NAC really was pushing the doors down, trying to get her son, the administration to step in and to provide some relief. Um, and, you know, as this has went on, we've definitely worked with a lot of our grantee partners to talk about how the current landscape, you know, impacts health centers, but very much understand that, you know, the posture in the cover entity space as a whole has really been not to open up the 340B statute. And I think that's why NAC really tried to work within the bounds of what was available to us and what was already created through the 340B statute. And so seeing how our um, ADR petition was dismissed at the end of 2022 really showed us, you know, working within the bounds of the 340B statute was just not going to work for us. But knowing that our other grantee, you know, partners and other colleagues in the 340B space really don't want to open the statute, we felt like we were caught between, you know, kind of a rock and a hard place. And I think you know, health centers work closely with all type of covered entities and all type of safety net providers. But when it came down to it, health centers just financially were in a different spot than other grantees, but also from a risk factor, um, you know, as the contract pharmacy restrictions grew, health centers were just feeling that impact more than others. And, you know, we had to do what's best for us, which was working outside of that kind of traditional 340B coalition that we've been a part of for decades. I was going to say, you know, you made a good point um, at, at the beginning um, of that comment, of Sherry, that, you know, as we look at it, too, I agree. We were, I work with quite a few community health centers uh, personally, and and sometimes they do may, might have an in-house retail, but the geographical spread for many community health centers is large. And contract pharmacies is such a big component of that, where, you know, some of our hospitals do have a lot more administered drugs, especially when you talk about infusion centers, and, and many of our hospitals do have in-house retail, but not all do. Some also rely heavily on contract pharmacy. But not everyone has clinics. And so when you think about clinic volume and patient prescriptions, I do think uh, community health centers and hospitals that have ambulatory care like critical access hospitals with rural health clinics are disproportionately impacted by these manufacturer restrictions to the point where it's it's it's, it's a financial hardship. So I, I think I understand where you're coming from there. Yeah, I mean, um, NAC had a, has a survey where 86% of health centers have contract pharmacies, and that includes um, health centers that even have in-house pharmacies. And about 46% of health centers cannot even afford to open an in-house pharmacy. Um, and the loss of 340B savings clearly also impacts that when you're thinking about how they can maybe expand their services. So we are the most impacted, but I say, you know, writ large, all of our health centers, majority of our health centers are feeling the impact of these restrictions. Vashiri, let's let's talk about where you think some of these 340B developments will go. Let's first start with the the contract pharmacy restrictions. Rob and I try to predict what we think is going to happen. How do you envision the litigation that um, has been involved in, you know, deciding whether or not the manufacturers have made lawful policies around restricting access to 340B prices in contract pharmacy channels? How are the court cases, do you think, going to play out. Do you think it's pragmatic to anticipate that we're going to see any relief of the restrictions from the pending federal cases? Um, you know, from following these cases uh, from the district court level to now to the appeals case level, you know, I think people are hoping for a best case scenario where there will be a circuit split. So a difference in how the courts arrive to their decisions or a variety of decisions between the three uh, uh, appeal court level cases um, you know, the first one that we have is the Third Circuit opinion. And, you know, I don't see that working out 
um, or I didn't see that um, influencing the next two cases to be in our favor. So the Third Circuit was definitely a huge blow um, and it was definitely in the manufacturer's uh, favor. And what was very unfortunate about that decision is number one, you know, it does not agree, the court did not agree with HHS, HHS's interpretation of the 340B statute that it requires unlimited access to contract pharmacies for an unlimited number. Um, second, the Third Circuit case found, you know, that the 340B statute is silent to the intent of the program. And so those are the two things, you know, that HHS has been relying on the most, that the statute requires this act, level of access for vulnerable patients, but also to unlimited amount of contract pharmacies. Um, and also, it's very interesting that AstraZeneca is a part of the Third Circuit Court opinion, and they don't even require you to submit data. Um, they're just restricting access to contract pharmacies. So then looking at the other two cases where at the district court level, we're both not in the favor of uh, HHS, I don't see a path forward where there's going to all of a sudden be this clean sweep. And the remaining two cases, it might be a little bit better than the Third Circuit, um, but I don't think that is a strategy that will yield the results uh, that health centers need or any other covered entities need. And that's simply because also, there's so many outstanding questions left that even if the court cases said, yes, contract pharmacy is a part of the 340B statute, uh, it would be, you know, it's very predictable that the manufacturers would continue to push, well, how many contract pharmacies and where could they be located? And is a court going to go that far to dive into the details of the mechanics of how contract pharmacy and 340B should work? So, you know, the litigation, we are not banking on that from the NAC perspective. I think after the Third Circuit Court opinion, we really feel like legislation is the path forward to protect our members, to protect 340B. Um, but also, I don't read the next two cases that could come out any day now to have a very different approach or decision than the Third Circuit Court opinion. So we have always kind of pushed to say that, you know, we we submitted amicus briefs and we supported the government and still do support the government's position. However, it is very clear that until the 340B statute specifically protects contract pharmacy access, that we will always be, um, you know, held to how the manufacturers decide to uh, interpret the 340B statute and they should not be the ones who are making up the rules, just like there shouldn't be covered entities making up the rules to the 340B program. Congress is the final voice to that. And, um, you know, we really need the legislation and 340B statute to speak to the true intent of this program, but also how it should work and, and how it should serve patients and those safety net providers. Because until then, we will always be at, op at odds about the interpretation of the statute. Interesting. You know, some of the, the chatter has been, well, if there's a split decision amongst the courts, or even if HRSA doesn't agree with the decision of the federal courts, that, that this issue could potentially get referred to the Supreme Court. You, th you think that's likely? Um, I mean, that would require all three decisions really having um, a difference in how they arrive to the opinion to say that each circuit is now, you know, interpreting the law in three different ways or two different ways. Uh, but even if that scenario played out, best case scenario, there's a circuit split and, and uh, the Supreme Court takes it up. We're not looking at a decision until maybe best case scenario, summer 2024. And I can say that from the health center perspective, if we have to stay in the status quo for another year, which is also probably looking at more manufacturer restrictions that we could see health centers close. Yeah. Um, and we don't think that 
devastation should be the thing that gets Congress to move. Um, so, you know, there could be a circuit split and the Supreme Court could take this issue up, but there's no guarantee that the Supreme Court also finds in the covered entities perspective, uh, given that this is very different than the Medicare 340B case that was at the Supreme Court um, last year. This is a different set of facts. It's a different type of interpretation. And I don't know if I want the Supreme Court having to dive into the 340B world uh, to make such a, you know, monumental decision that really impacts safety net providers across the country. Let's talk about another case. You know, we've, we've had a lot of discussion about this one as well. Patient definition has been a hot topic amongst the, uh, the folks in the 340B community that we work with. Any thoughts on how the Genesis Healthcare versus Azar case um, might introduce some disruption around how 340B providers interpret patient definition or even how HRSA might enforce subregulatory guidance? Genesis is a member of NAC, and I think it's it's been interesting to watch how this case unfolds. Um, I think it does shed a light that there is um, a lot of gray area when it comes to patient definition and also how far HRSA's reach is on when it comes to enforcing the 340B statute um, and being able to do consistent auditing when it comes to patient definition. And so I think, you know, we are definitely watching this case as close as others, but I think Genesis model was really about how can they, you know, expand access to 340B to as many patients as possible. Um, I think there is a difference of opinion on how far the bounds of that can go. But once again, I think that just circles back to, uh, you know, patient definition, we're operating off of guidance from 1996. In 2023, uh, the delivery of healthcare has changed so much and uh, grown so much since then that it's worth the conversation about what does patient definition look like to be in the 340B statute, but also for HRSA to have um, the regulatory authority they need to fully govern this program. And I think that's what we've been seeing play out in that case is that you know HRSA does not have much to work with when it comes to defending their patient definition. And that has always historically been a challenge in the 340B program. Yeah, I mean, you, you see that just looking at program integrity results posted on OPA's website. You know, the rate of diversion findings is lower today than it's been in the past. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this particular case unfolds. So I think the argument for a Appeals is scheduled for like August. Rob, we might have to invite Visharia back afterwards to have her analyze the decision, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think we're all waiting to see what happens. I, I do think it's interesting because if anything does happen with rulemaking authority for HRSA, I, I think then the Genesis case could be somewhat moot um, because our argument would, you know, if, if HRSA can write rules around patient definition, then then it doesn't matter what their interpretation is historically or what the statute says historically if there's new um you know, regulation or rules around it. So, you know, things could change, although I am not holding my breath. Same thing. I think for sure you said it around uh, contract farms restrictions, Supreme Court, not going to hold my breath that anything's going to happen between now and then. Um, uh, it seems kind of quick considering how slow everything moves at Congress. So within yeah, Congress. Yeah. And I think like the challenge of patient definition is that every covered entity has a different approach to it, not just like you know, every health center to health center, but every covered entity type because of the way they serve their patients. Um, and then maybe if you're a grantee, how your grant program works. So it's also just such a challenge to craft a patient definition that can be equally applied to 12 different covered entity types. Um, and that's such a challenge for HRSA that we've seen. So it's like, 
you know, once they get through this hump, which whichever way the litigation goes, I think it's clear that patient definition needs to be revisited in a way that HRSA can demonstrate that they are able to um, enforce it the way that we want, but then also in a way that doesn't jeopardize the program and how covered entities are able to make the judgment of who's eligible for the program. All right, well, let's switch gears here. You know, we, our conversation we had kind of off the record last week was really around, you know, just talking about the advocacy attempts uh, of NAC to really pitch the need for folks to have a discussion around 340B program reform. And I think what we want to talk about today is ASAP 340B. Lots of uh, uh, chatter around the, the 340B program principles that ASAP 340Bs put out. I know there was some discussion about them and some debate about them at the, the recent 340B coalition conference. Lots of rhetoric out on LinkedIn and on Twitter and on social social media about the merits of the proposals. But let, let's just start and have you kind of describe the organization of ASAP 340B for our listeners. Yeah, yeah. I'm, you know, ASAP 340B has definitely uh, made a splash in the 340B world, I think, bigger than I anticipated. Um, but, you know, kind of going back to what I was saying, this timeline of how NAC has really been trying to work within the confines of the 340B statute and legally what we've been able to do, uh, you know, we really reached a point in 2022 fall um, after our ADR uh, petition was dismissed. Um, and that was dismissed based off of the um, understanding from the ADR panel that the issues we are bringing forth in our ADR petition, which is about the contract pharmacy issues, were already addressed in the litigation we legally could not be a party to. Um, so we felt like we really didn't have anywhere else to go besides really, you know, putting our all and our effort into a legislative strategy. And, you know, we try to work within the confines of the 340B coalition, which we have been members of for a very long time. And I think um, other covered entities were not ready to talk about opening the statute, but health centers just could not afford to wait any longer. And so, you know, we often have felt like we've been caught between kind of pharma and the hospitals and a staring competition between the two of who's really going to make a move and are we ever going to move out of this contentious space in 340B. And I think tensions have only grown over the last three years. And so, um, you know, hospitals are not in a place where they think legislation is the uh, is the solution that works for them and that the current status quo is better than opening the statute. Health centers see that differently. Um, health centers feel that we need a legislative solution to get out of this time period where a manufacturer can make a business decision where that where the rug is pulled from under our feet. And so we had been having conversations with pharma um, in 2022 about how we could work together on the Protect 340B Act that NAC was an author of and just was reintroduced uh, a few weeks ago. And the Protect 340B Act, you know, we felt that we could be aligned there because it's really about uh, pharmacy benefit managers and discriminatory practices, so PBMs. And those conversations evolved to, you know, manufacturers would come to the table on PBMs and maybe contract pharmacy, but could not come to the table and have a conversation about how there are covered entities in the program that maybe are not, you know, participating in the best faith um, or really prioritizing serving vulnerable patients the way that health centers we know for sure do. 90% of health center patients are 200% of below the federal poverty level. So it's no question of how health centers are using 340B savings 
you know, we're, we're required under statute to reinvest those savings back into patient care. So, you know, transparency, we're open book. Health centers have nothing to hide. And so through our conversations with pharma, it became very much about how can we reform the whole program? How can we modernize the 340B program that was written in 1992, this statute, and in 2023 account for all the complexities like uh, the Affordable Care Act, managed care, um, you know, just how healthcare has grown. And so it was important to our members that we can demonstrate that there was no stone uh, not turned over to look for a solution. Um, and the NAC board directed us to take very aggressive action to protect health centers interests in 340B. Um, so that led us to having conversations and the core principles that people have seen, uh, which really was an exercise about if we could um, get on the same page with pharma about traditionally some of the hardest issues where we are on opposite sides of the spectrum, then we knew there was a path forward to look at legislation and to be partners. And ASAP 340B reflects NAC's willingness to be a partner with manufacturers and, and pharma um, to really look at the program from every angle to say, how can we protect this program and put it on stable footing for the next 30 years? Uh, the writing's been on the wall for a, a while that things are going to get worse before they got better, as we've seen uh, the flurry of new contract pharmacy restrictions coming out 2023. And, you know, NAC's approach was we'd rather be at the table uh, for dinner instead of being dinner at the table. And so, you know, health centers deserve to have their day and their voice heard. And we felt like we have not. And so um, we came up with ASAP 340B. The NAC board approved those core principles. Uh, the pharma board also approved the core principles. And then we moved forward with the formation of ASAP 340B to really create the urgency um, to Congress that we needed a solution on 340B immediately and that we can no longer operate in the status quo. And, you know, I think from the health center perspective, if the 340B statute and program was working the way it was intended to, then manufacturers would not be able to dictate the rules of this program. Um, and from the manufacturer perspective, if the 340B program and statute was working the way it was supposed to, that HRSA would have the appropriate amount of oversight uh, to be able to govern this program that's almost as large as Medicare. Uh, you look at the numbers and how those two programs um, compare, and 340B does not have even half of the oversight and requirements that Medicare does, but the spending levels are about the same. And so we are at the table to you know, be a thought partner with pharma, uh, to work together, because this program is not going to work with just hospitals dictating the rules, with just health centers dictating the rules, or with manufacturers just dictating the rules. So it's about how can we create a collaborative space where every 340B stakeholder has a say in what this program looks like and how we work towards that. Um, but it does involve some level of compromise. And I think 80% of something is better than 100% of nothing. And the status quo for health centers is gonna be 100% of nothing a few years down the line if we aren't proactive and working towards a solution. I, I, I got to jump in. That, that quote about dinner um, is fantastic, by the way. It's a good analogy. Um, you know, it does it does make you do have to be at the decision making process to be able to impact change. And and I, th I think we get my guess is this decision didn't come lightly um, to partner with pharma. That's that's a tough aisle to cross. But uh, but I think that helps us understand and the hospitals understand it better. So thank you for sharing that. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, we worked with pharma six or seven months on on the core principles and understand that folks feel like they would have preferred to um, have input along the way. But I think NAC made it very clear to all covered entities that we were going to pursue legislation. Uh, whether they took us serious or not is another thing, but I think that we did our due diligence to let people know we were going to pursue legislation um, and we were looking for a willing partner to do that. And manufacturers are willing to do that. And now, you know, I'm not going to say every single manufacturer is supportive of ASAP 340B. And I also can't say that every single health center is supportive of ASAP 340B. Uh, but this work is a starting point in a conversation and working towards a solution. Um, and any covered entity that wants to be a part of the conversation, we have made space for them and there's an invitation and the door is open. And that also includes hospitals. We make it very clear, you know, in the core principles that we really do value rural hospitals and also the impact of the current landscape and want them to be a willing partner. So in the core principles, um, critical access hospitals, sole community hospitals are treated just like uh, health centers and other grantees in the space. And, you know, we also recognize the value of public hospitals and county hospitals and want to make sure they are protected through this process as well. But I think that, um, you know, NAC and Pharma had a work out of there um, before we could let other folks join us at the table. And it wasn't in secret. It just more so of like, we wanted to do that work together. And if our two organizations could agree, we could move forward. But now that ASAP 340B is public, you know, I'd love to say on this podcast, like if anyone's interested in learning more or coming to the table, uh, you know, the door is really open because we want to make sure that folks can see themselves in our core principles. Not going to say we got it 100% right. I don't work for a hospital, so I did not give input um, to protect every single hospital across America. That That's not my job. I work at NAC. However, um, you know, we want hospital partners to come to the table because their voice does matter. However, you know, it's not, it's hard to work with someone who refuses to engage um, and acknowledge that this program is not functioning the way it should be, or um, you know, getting a little further away than the intent of why it was created. I was just going to say, yeah, and, and, I mean, that's one thing we did see very specifically in there was that the critical access hospitals and sole community hospitals were kind of more more um, grouped with the grantees, which I thought was 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 good because we do support a lot of critical access hospitals and 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 actually they're very similar what we talked about where um, they don't always have met, you know big infusion centers their administered drug side of the 340B savings is small comp and compared to the retail or contract pharmacy because many critical access hospitals do have rural health clinics, right? Uh, they're small community. They're really the only health care in some cases for, for miles. Um, and so I thought it was critical to save. So I, I thought that was a good call out that uh, that was recognized early on that um, there needs to be some protection for critical access. Um, so we know it's kind of the more dish hospitals. But Greg, I think um, you're going to kind of get into that hospital specifics as well, if, if, if I'm guessing. Yeah, and I don't think we need to really kind of hash out the the merits of each of the different proposals. But some of the feedback that we've gotten from our, our hospital constituents is, that, you know, there, there are a few hospital types that have been excluded from uh, the initial proposal. So, for example, pediatric hospitals qualify as a, a specific covered entity type, and, and they're often seen as a safety net for pediatric patient populations. They got a high utilization of specialty drugs. You know, dish hospitals and rural referral centers often have hospital-based family medicine or primary care services that may rely on specialty referrals, not unlike um, some of the health centers. Um, and just, the, you know, generally, you know, 
payer restrictions and limited distribution models and REMS programs set up by manufacturers might limit access to contract pharmacies that might exist outside of a covered entity's um, geographic region, the 40 mile radius that a lot of the manufacturers have implemented in terms of their restrictions. So for, for those, Vasheri, for those hospitals that, that feel that the tone of the principles suggests that they're not a part of the safety net, how do you encourage those folks to, to get involved in the dialogue to make sure that their, their voice is being heard around these issues? Yeah, I think first I would check the source of your information. So, you know, um, the core principles were leaked before they were supposed to be public. And there's also documents uh, that were created for the NAC board, board, the pharma board that are now floating all over LinkedIn and in people's inbox. So uh, to that, I say that there are multiple interpretations of the core principles. And I think that people take the most negative interpretation uh, because pharma um, was a part of ASAP 340B and NAC work with them. And so I think checking the source of your information uh, is really important because, you know, um, there are things that are being interpreted, which is not the way we intended it to be drafted. And it's really important that folks come to the table with an open mind with the core principles to say, okay, well, this could be read this way or that way. And I'm going to look at it uh, from a more positive light because NAC is not, you know, a part of ASAP 340B or worked on these core principles to kick out every covered entity or kick out every single hospital. Now, uh, are there some hospitals that maybe will not like the legislative proposal because they do not want to be transparent or that they do not see the value in compromising a little bit to protect the entire program? That's fair. Um, but the intent of a lot of these, you know, core principles is really restoring the integrity to modernize the program, to build in accountability. And if you really depend on 340B savings, then you should be able to find some common ground in the core principles. You know, it's a difference between if you like 340B savings and you like having additional revenue versus my health centers who need 340B to keep their doors open. And when you're in a place of, um, you know, it's keeping the lights on or not for 340B, you have a different conversation about what does it look like to find a solution. And so, you know, rural referral centers, um, you know, there's been articles on how urban hospitals are qualifying as rural referral centers. And so, you know, that is not who NAC is looking to protect. I'll be very, you know, honest with you. But, you know, I'm sure there are rural referral centers that don't appreciate um, urban hospitals using the classification and making it more difficult for them to stay in the program um, to benefit their patients and keep their doors open. Um, and I think that's really what ASAP 340B is trying to highlight that there are a few bad actors out there uh, who are using the program and everybody knows a covered entity who they could say, oh, I don't know uh, if they're really a safety net provider and should they be able to ruin the program uh, because none of us want to call it out and health centers aren't there anymore. We're willing to step aside and to say, yeah, there are some safety net providers um, that are just like health centers and really depend on this resources. And then there are some uh, facilities that are in this program that do not need 340B in the same way. And so when we talk about that this program is for safety net providers, that is who the core principles reflect. And you know, the core principles, like I said, are a starting point. It's a whole nother exercise to translate them to legislation. And we have not started drafting that legislation yet simply because we are working um, to bring other covered entities to the table to make sure other voices are at the table and that hospital perspective is really important. And you know, we have met with some hospitals that are willing to have conversations about the core principles who are willing to you know, 
um, be transparent about how they use 340B. So we're hoping that once we get the right mix of stakeholders at the table, we can really start working towards legislation where I think also um, a lot of concerns will be alleviated, really translating what we mean and intend behind the core principles that maybe weren't accurately um, captured in the drafts that people have seen. That's that's actually great information because I mean, it, like everyone else, we we saw some of those early um, drafts. Uh, you know, they got circulated, so that's really good to know. And and that's unfortunate, uh, right? That sometimes we, some people, including probably myself, jumped a little bit of conclusions I'm on sure the first round. And um, <laughs> would we ever do that? <laughs> I mean, like I know it was a big shock and it's a big splash, but I think that should show where health centers are at in this. You know, yes. if, if we're working with pharma, we are actively looking for a solution. Um, and that it shows that we are going to the folks that we are at odds with to say that we need a we need a path forward that doesn't have to end with devastation, health centers, doors closing, our patients being impacted. You know, for instance, these most recent restrictions from GSK are very unfortunate and they will have in huge consequences for our patients. There are now certain classes of drugs that are not available at the 340B price. Um, and what does that mean for our patients? And what does that mean for our health centers being able to provide additional health services to those patients as well? So it's not just about affordable medication. And you know, that's what I've also heard from people that they read the core principles and they feel like we're trying to make this a drug discount program. Absolutely not. Health centers use 340B to keep you know, services that do not generate high profits like dentists, um, you know, bringing in like community health workers or different types of nurses that aren't reimbursable under Medicaid. You know, health centers use 340B to fill the gaps and to stretch those federal scarce resources. So we are not advocating to make this just a drug discount program. It's about all the services that covered entities provide in these communities. And that's what we want to protect is the providers who need those resources and the patients that they serve. Um, and keeping that in mind when you read the core principles is really important because it's about the greater good of this program and not just one health center or one hospital and what they want, but what everyone needs to keep this program going. Yeah, I, I, we absolutely feel that. You know, again, we we work with both all covered entity types and uh, I can love stressing that point that community health centers don't have a lot of margin. And with a lot of contract pharmacy, savings being not only their avenue for some savings to, to run additional programs or bring additional services to underserved populations, it's also sometimes the only mechanism by which they can actually dispense drugs at a discount and, and using a sliding fee scale or discounts for those patients who either are uninsured, underinsured, or just can't make their co-pays for whatever reason. Uh, really critical that we keep that access and available. And and I agree. I, I think my guess is that uh, NAC didn't go into this lightly or as a as a first option, but it was probably a a, a last resort, a last ditch effort to to make sure that all the community health centers could stay open and keep taking care of their patient populations. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, we had a small group of health centers that also worked with us along the way to draft these core principles. And, and you know, like I said, we didn't get everything completely right. Um, and we're working with other really interested uh, covered entities in the HIV and STD space um, to make sure that we got it right for them because we want the, we, we've always said that we see Ryan White Clinics as a partner to NAC um, and health centers as well. A lot of our health centers are Ryan White Clinics. And so, you know, the things that we've heard feedback wise that we did not get right, we're actively working with stakeholders in those communities to, you know, uh, 
tweak the language to demonstrate what we intended it to do. Um, I think people are expecting to see like a brand new core principles and that's not gonna happen because number one, that wasn't for people to really see, but number two, we're moving forward in this process and moving towards uh, legislation. Um, but we're gonna release you know, more materials um, to demonstrate how we've taken in feedback that we've gotten from interested stakeholders and to make sure that people's voice is heard because you know that's what's important in this process is to get Congress to move, we need a holistic approach. And that also is not just a covered entity bill. That's also not just a contract pharmacy bill. You know, If Congress wanted to just do something just for co covered entities, just for hospitals, just for health centers, they would have done it. It's a reason why it's so difficult um, to get a 340B fix. And it's because it takes a little bit of everyone at the table to move that. And so ASAP 340B hopes that we are that convening table, um, that we can show that unity among stakeholders. You know, three, four years ago, manufacturers were not enemy number one in 340B. It was PBMs which are still enemy number one in 340B. They're still there. Yeah. yeah. Still there. So like, you know, let's get over this hump. We're not on the same page. That is okay. But can we work together to achieve this goal in front of us? And then if you want to go back to being on opposite sides of the spectrum, we can do that. But for right now, ASAP 340B is working very hard to create that momentum in Congress, to create that urgency, but also create that convening space where you can, you know, Minds can differ, but how can we work together to, you know, put this program in the place it's supposed to? Because if things keep going the way that it is, I don't see this ending just by itself and fizzling out. Two years from now, it's going to just progressively get worse. Being proactive. So if I'm an advocacy person out there, I'm, I'm involved in, in advocacy in my small space of the world, and, and I want to be involved or I want to, you know, be, be able to interact or engage with ASAP 340B. What, how do you suggest I do that? Yeah, so I would definitely go on and uh, join ASAP 340B's like mailing newsletter on our website, follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn. Um, I don't think we have an Instagram. Um, also, you can, um, you know, for advocacy reasons, I say too, one of the biggest things that we are working on is educating members of Congress on how the 340B program works for your covered entity. Um, and some of the challenge that we have with some of the feedback um, from others who are opposing ASAP 340B is they're calling to quote unquote, protect 340B by doing nothing. Um, and you might not like what ASAP 340B is doing, but for anyone to call and say that the program is fine the way it is, really calls the question, uh, especially if you are a hospital organization with over 20 manufacturer restrictions. That does not sound like the program is working the way it's supposed to. So if you are interested in advocating and you, um, support the path that ASAP 3 is going down, which is to have a legislative solution. It's really important to work with your members of Congress so they understand what 340B means for your covered entity, why you need a solution sooner than later, and, and what, you know, if contract pharmacy is not your thing, just making sure that they understand what 340B savings does for your safe, you as a safety net provider and the patients that you serve. Um, if you are a NAC member, we have multiple ways that you can get involved. Uh, you can feel free to email me and I can share those as well. But I think it's really talking about sharing and telling the 340B story. Like, does your family know what 340B is? Unfortunately, my husband knows a little too much of what 340B is, but really making this a more common topic I think is really also going to be important because if patients knew um, 
what the 340B program meant to their, you know, health center or hospital um, or hemophilia treatment center, then they would maybe jump in this fight too to protect the program. So it's how do we elevate 340B to be a common term, um, to be more than just a random word to some folks. And I think that's also going to be really important for the fight. Um, and then I do want to just give a shameless plug. We have our 340B grantees conference where this will be a topic of conversation about how can you elevate 340B to your C-suite? Um, how can you get more involved with 340B advocacy? You have great organizations like CB340B, Community Voices for 340B, that does a lot of space in advocacy as well and is a great partner to NAC. Um, so I think there's a lot of you know great organizations out here that are doing the work to work towards 340B legislation and that advocacy. Um, but you know, it's also important to challenge your colleagues. Uh, who feel like putting their head in the sand is also a solution to protect 340B because I just don't understand um, how that will benefit anyone three years from now, five years from now. No, that that makes sense as well. And, and, and you know, that's one thing I think we, we heard at uh, Coalition um, was that NAC would be uh, at the, you know, focusing on the Ryan White, um, the RWC 340B conference. I know for everyone listening, um, we've got some of our uh, grantee auditors going. We've got... Uh, Megan and Jasmine going, Eric um, Howard, our RVP is going as well. So uh, we're, I think we're going to do one of the tabletops that will be there. So so Spenman Farms will be there. So excited for that and then getting a crew out there to that conference. And I did want to clarify if that's okay. I think at the conference we heard maybe that NAC will be focusing more on these grantee conferences in the future and not so much 340B Coalition. Can we confirm that? Um, well, we are still members of the 340B Coalition. Okay. I think anyone who attended... Uh, could see that it was a little bit of a hostile environment. There were protesters. Um, there was inappropriate comments made in the opening general session, uh, which was very unfortunate knowing the large amount of health centers that do attend the 340B coalition. And I could say that NAC members, health centers do not appreciate the environment. Um, so NAC will probably not be at the summer coalition meeting, but we are still members of the coalition. And, you know, if our members would like to attend that conference, that's up to them. But NAC ourselves are definitely putting more resources in how can we create more spaces for our health centers to get more 340B education on policy and compliance. And the 340B grantee is one of them. We work, you know, closely with the Ryan White Coalition. Uh, like I said, a lot of our members are part of the Ryan White Coalition or are, um, you know, HIV providers or Ryan White grantees themselves. And so we're really working to kind of create that grantee space because our issues are different when you intersect them with those grant programs as well. And so members need kind of that specific technical assistance to really understand um, the policy changes, but also how to run a compliant program. Oh, that, that that's good to hear. So still part of it. So not summer, but uh, maybe see how things go. Maybe, maybe there might be a return in future future conferences. Yeah, maybe. Keep the, we'll keep the door open. How's that? <laughs> All right, so um, the RWC 340B conference, grantee conference, uh, May 3rd through 5th, correct? Yes, in New Orleans. And if you like Jazz Fest, it's the same week. So you can make it a little vacation, get some beignets, some good food on Bourbon Street, and then also learn about 340B. In terms of education, do you have any highlights uh, that you want folks to look out for if they're going to attend the conference? Yeah, um, so I think something that's really important, I mentioned a little bit, is um, education for the C-suite. I know that's been a challenge for our health centers prior to kind of the contract pharmacy restrictions is really getting their C-suite involved with 340B, not having that just live solely in the 340B, I'm sorry, in the pharmacy department, because it's, you know, 
Uh, 340B compliance can touch all areas of the health center, not just the pharmacy. Um, we have some sessions on advocacy. We have a 340B 101. Um, we also have specific breakouts for Ryan White's as well as health centers to really get into the nitty gritty. Like a challenge for a lot of health centers is how do you discount medication, thinking about the sliding fee scale and also the requirements of the health center program. Um, we're also having sessions on the litigation. So really just breaking down kind of on the policy side, emerging policy issues and also advocacy. And then on the compliance side, getting into the unique areas um, that Ryan White's clinics maybe struggle with or health centers struggle with. And then I think there's a level of networking too um, to really connect and meet with partners because health centers are smaller, Ryan White clinics are smaller. Sometimes people step into these roles and are just grandfathered in, you know, handed a notebook and say, here, go figure it out. And so these conferences are really helpful for folks who are new to their role, don't have a friend to really pick up the phone and call, especially if they started in COVID. So these are also, you know, a great opportunity to kind of network and meet folks because, you know, you can't Google 340B answers. I tried when I started this role. So unless you have some good friends in the 340B space, it's usually really hard to figure out some of these wonky issues. And we hope that this conference is a, a way to connect with folks and you know in the same space as you. I'll, I'll say I've been I was uh, messing around with ChatGPT over the weekend, and I'll say right now that th that platform is definitely not going to take away uh, business from 340B experts. Does not do a very good job of putting together <laughs> 340B recommendations. So you're right. There's a real kind of dearth of you know good recommendations out on the web for 340B program operations. So. Yeah, and then I, I have one more shameless plug. So Nax conferences, we also. Um, are doing 340B Day, that's specifically for health centers. Um, and, you know, we work in partnership with Apexis, who also does 340B University at NAT conferences as well. Um, so if you're a health center, you're able to get that FQHC specific 340B University, and then you're able to attend NAC's 340B Day as well. Excellent. Rob, any other questions for Visharia before we wrap things up here? No, I, I just appreciate, you know, you coming on the podcast. I appreciate you being a listener as well and sharing your perspective. We think it's important to get everyone's perspective, again, for all covered entity types. Appreciate what you do for the community health centers. Understanding this one's a little spicy. This one's this is on the, on the, the habanero side uh, for some people, but, uh, we, but, but your perspective is really important and we're glad we can help get it out there and, and that you came on. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank y'all for um, giving us a space. Thank you for the assistance you lend health centers and other safety net providers. Um, and, you know, when ASAP 340B gets our legislation introduced, maybe I could come back on. Absolutely. I agree. Thank Open you. invitation, Fisheri. We'd love to have you back. Thank you guys so much. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll, uh, we'll catch you all the next time. Take care. Hey, everyone. This is Greg. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. As we mentioned with Fisheria, the SpendMen Pharmacy team is going to be attending the 340B Grantee Spring Conference this May down in New Orleans. We'll have a table set up in the exhibitor area of the conference, and some of our grantee compliance specialists will be on site attending many of the great educational seminars planned. If you're going to the conference, make sure you stop by the table and say hello. Otherwise, if you can't make it, don't worry. We'll recap everything that we take away from the conference here on a future episode of the podcast. Also, we love hearing feedback about the podcast itself. So if you think there's a topic that we need to discuss, or if you even have an interest in coming on and chatting about a specific development in the 340B space, please reach out to us. You can find us on various social media platforms like Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram, or you can email us at 340Bunscripted at spendmen.com. Thanks again and take care. 
Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 